make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible or a device that you use to look at the Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's going to be the one that's going to help us the most today and show us Jesus very clearly, I think. We, we were actually there last week, so some of y'all will remember the passage. While you're turning there, some of you know this about my family, some of you don't, but for the last almost 20 years, about 18 years, we've lived on financial support. So what that means is, is every summer for about three weeks, I fly to West Texas, which is where I grew up, and that's where most of my financial partnership team is, and that's where I meet with the families. I talk to them, I encourage them of what God is doing, I celebrate the wins, I mourn the losses with them, we, we develop our relationship more and more. It's, it's actually a real refreshing and fun time because some of these families I've known for almost two decades, they've supported me since I was skipping college classes, and now we're getting to plant churches. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun few weeks. Um, there was a few years back where instead of driving in for this season, I was flying into Texas and borrowing one of my parents' cars, right? They had two or three cars at the time. They could easily see one disappear for a month. It was nice for me. It saved me a lot of time and trouble on my car, so I'd fly in, take my mom's car, and drive it around to my appointments. This is what the car was, right? <laughs> It was a 2012, which is, that's the year this is, and it was a deep burgundy. It was a Nissan Z350 GT, had the racing package. It did have indentations in the back to fit nitrous tanks. Had aluminum racing pedals. It just screamed luxury. It just screamed, look at me. Every time I pulled up to a stoplight, people just assumed I wanted to race, you know. They're honking their horns or revving their engines like I'm going to race in that car. But I could if I wanted to, because look at that thing, right? So I'm driving to these support appointments to raise money, right? So you've got to get the irony of this thing. So I pull up, and a lot of these people I don't know very well. Some of them I've known for 18 years, 15 years, and, you know, I expect the jokes from them. Hey, the ministry must be great, Luke, you know? I mean, I'm glad to see that you're using our money so well. And, and they only know that's a joke because of it, that's, that's what it looks like. For the people I didn't know very well, maybe three or four years, before I could even say hi, I would have to say, hey, listen, listen, this isn't my car. This is my mom's car. Because I would need to tell them that so that they know they can trust me. I'm really saying, hey, your money is safe. I'm not spending it on luxury items for myself. Something that I have to be very upfront about because, listen, they're dealing with the same struggles and hesitations that all of us do. I'm about to ask them to either continue supporting us financially, thank them for supporting us financially, and possibly even ask for a small gift or for the, to help us with chairs or, or curtains. Or I mean, our, our team paid for this screen and the sound system. I mean, that's how, that's, that's how and when all of that happened. But they've got daughters going to college. Their church that they go to, they're putting in a parking lot. Oil is down. They're in a recession. All kinds of things that they're struggling with as they look at the sacrifice that I might ask them to make. That Nissan Z is not really helping, right? I know that because my heart would struggle with that. My heart would look and 
the sacrifice that I'm being asked to make. Is every, everything is grabbing at my finances. And the same economy that's hitting everybody else is hitting me as well. And everyone's got a Nissan Z behind them. It feels like in the ministry today, there's a lot of distrust in how pastors and missionaries and ministries in general are using money. Or maybe some of you don't struggle with that very much. Maybe this isn't such a phenomenon for you. Maybe you have grown up believing that if you give a certain amount of money into a specific ministry, then maybe God will give you a Nissan Z. So we're going to deal with both realities today. Because I think the Bible speaks very clearly to this. Last week, we started a passage, and we actually ran out of time before we ran out of passage But we looked at the Apostle Paul as he spoke to a young church that he planted, or he had a big hand in planting, and it was a wealthier church. This is a church that a year earlier had pledged to give a good amount of money to a struggling set of churches in Judea, right? But they didn't. At best, they were being sloppy with how they were handling God's treasure. At worst, they were considering skipping out on the gift. So Paul had to address this. And he addressed it using a great example of the church in Macedonia, another region of impoverished churches, another set of churches that weren't doing so well. But they showed us in our passage last week that even though they had great affliction, and although they were weathering incredible poverty, they had gospel joy mixed in, and it showed sacrificial generosity. We learned that maybe, maybe those who take the hits those who weather the losses and feel affliction and feel impoverishment all around them pressing in, maybe it's those people that have the greatest opportunity to show the world what sacrificial generosity looks like. I mean, that's what Jesus taught. If you were to go back and look in the book of Mark, I think it's in chapter 12, but it might be in chapter 10, somewhere in that, that middle part of Mark, you see Jesus gathering his disciples and saying, hey, listen, guys, Don't believe what you're seeing. Don't believe what you're seeing. I mean, there's a guy over there. He wrote a check that was so big that colleges renamed their library after him. This guy wrote a check that's so big, it's probably going to set the temple's budget for the next five years. Everyone's writing these massive checks, out-of-control checks. But you know who really, really gave today? That woman over there. Y'all probably thought she was a custodian or a janitor. She put a few cents in that bucket, and it is all she had to live on. She gave more than everybody. And Jesus kind of shows us what real giving and what real generosity looks like and how generosity is detached from the amount of the gift but speaks more to the sacrifice that is felt in the gift. This is what we looked at last week. If you weren't here last week, I challenge you to go back and listen to the sermon, not because I think I'm an awesome preacher, but because I think this passage really confronts our hearts when it comes to how we handle our money. We saw the gospel very clearly. A picture of Jesus last week as he gained and accrued poverty and shame. As he started to condescend and stoop to our level, even unto death, that we might gain wealth. An impoverishing God for a wealthy family. So we saw the beauty of the gospel as it plays out in such a way that poverty and wealth are redefined forever for you and I. We don't look at poverty the same way that the world does, and we don't look at wealth the same way the world does. This passage today actually changes a few things in addition to that. And that, that's what I'd like to look at today. So look at verse 13. We're going to jump right in. Verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, 
but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. You see, that last sentence is in quotes because it's actually quoted from the Old Testament. It came from Exodus. It's notable where it came from. This is coming during a time where God was dropping manna, just miraculous food provision for all of his people, his people. And it didn't really matter how big your family was. If you had a small family, you could go out and gather as much as you need, and there wouldn't be any lack, and there wouldn't be any left over. You'd have just enough. You'd have provision. If you were a big family, it didn't hurt you that your family was bigger. You could actually go out and collect enough for your family, and there wouldn't be lack, and there wouldn't be a whole lot left over. You'd have just enough. This is the passage that Paul chose to pull from, and that is notable for us. You see, the first thing we learn is that stewarding God's treasure means helping those around us that are in critical need. Helping those around us in critical need. But hear me, the church is not communistic in its posture. The church is not a hippie commune. All Paul is saying right now is, look, there are times where you're going to have abundance. There are times when you're going to have a lot And at that time, there's going to be those around you who are lacking of just basic needs. Whenever that happens, you should disperse and shed some of your wealth to those in drastic need to show a portrait of how God shed and dispersed his wealth to you when you were in even bigger need. This is all that Paul is saying. We know this because of a passage in John. Stay where you're at. I'm going to put this up on the screen. It's some John 6, 48, and it is Jesus speaking about this very thing. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And of course, if you've read John, you know that after this, everyone starts freaking out about what Jesus is saying. But what we see is that Jesus is a better bread. He's a better manna, sufficient for anyone who hungers, just right for anyone who has need. He sacrificed himself to meet our most basic need. And when we give, we give as a portrait of this. You see, the big idea last week, I'm just going to carry right on over to this week. The big idea is this, we give like our God gives. We give like our God gives. Like Jesus, we shed our wealth. We disperse our abundance to help those in critical need around us survive, just as Jesus did for us when we were in a much tougher wilderness with a much deeper lack. This is nothing short of famine relief, what we're talking about right now. You know, we just finished the book of Acts not too long ago. It took us 30-something weeks. But way back in the earlier weeks, we were in Acts 2, where it said they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. As any had need. Listen, there should be no Christian church where there are people partnered in, membered into a local body who have their basic needs unmet. That should not ever happen in any good church. There should never be a church where a member of God's people have basic needs that are unmet. This is what we see. But the Bible avoids the injustice of communism 
and saying that you don't have rights to personal property. It avoids that by saying you do have rights over your personal property, and everything you give is voluntary, not obligated, but it's up to you. But it also does not avoid the fact that we have those who are poor and hurting around us, and it appeals to the gospel for us to be a part of showing the gospel in our giving. Of course, there's no real easy answers here, is there? I mean, it's easy on paper. I mean, it'd be easy just to move on to the next point and pretend that it doesn't get sticky at this point, but it, it does when we talk about equality and when we talk about sharing and giving. All kinds of things come in. I mean, well, who are we giving to and what are they going to do with it? There's social issues. There's political issues. There's economic issues. We really have to depend on the Lord for this. I look forward in the future to teaching a class that talks about just this. How does the church do this? It exceeds our parameters for today, but there is some quick application I feel like I can give. Think in your mind about the dire needs, the, the lack at the most basic level of those that you live tightly with now in the closest of proximities, like no food or lights being shut off or something so tragic that it just totally disrupts their life. Most basic needs is the key word. What about those in your neighborhood? I mean, do any faces or addresses pop into your mind? What about the people of God that are in this city that are struggling, those overseas? One of the best applications is just asking God for the grace to give because he's already given you the means to give, right? We talked about this last week as well. Praying that God gives you the grace to give because he's already given you the means to give. God is an excellent owner. He's not a bad owner. He would never give you um, an obligation and not give you the tools to meet the obligation. If he says, steward these finances accordingly, it would be odd to look at him and say, you haven't given me anything to steward. We would be calling him a liar. He's given us a mandate, and he is a good owner. He's given us the means. How we steward them, that's a totally different subject. Ask for grace to give. What does that look like? Well, sometimes it looks like just caring. When the gospel comes and it wrecks us, we become a people that used to sound like, that's your problem, to a people that sound like, where can I help? That's nothing short of the grace of God doing that in us. But I continually need that because I can very easily slip back to the, that's your problem. I can very easily slip back to, I hope you get that worked out. But the, the gospel has changed me to care and has changed you to care but in which direction? Because it seems overwhelming, right? People of God need help in every direction. Have you noticed, if you're a Christian, have you noticed that in your life there is something that kind of, with all the voices screaming for need and finances and help and time, something that screams a little bit louder than the others? Maybe a passion. The Bible calls that a burden. <laughs> I think that comes by the grace of God as well to distinguish from all of the needs which one is most important to you. Have you ever met someone that felt like what was the most gigantic burden to them needs to be your burden as well, right? So maybe it's a country. Maybe they're all about Taiwan. We need to reach the Taiwanese. And all they talk about is Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwan. And they almost make you feel like you're a horrible Christian if you don't have a big heart for Taiwan, right? Or maybe you want to reach single mothers, and that's your biggest thing, but they want to reach people who are coming out of the prison system. And they make it seem like if you don't have a care or a concern over the, the ex-convicts coming out of the prison system, that you're like a heartless person. You don't have to feel like that. 
I think the burdens that we have a lot of times are actually God-designed. I think they're God-birthed in us to have. You know, that we were talking this morning in our partnership class about our calm groups. And this is partly why we structured them according to mission the way that we do. Because you will more likely be involved in God's mission to Knoxville if you're buried inside of a group of five or six other families that share your burden. And as you guys pray for the grace of God to enable you to give to that segment of the neighborhood, to give your time and your talent and your treasure, something beautiful happens. Mission happens to the city because God is giving you opportunity. He's giving you grace. He's giving you more and more means, which we will talk about right now. That's so much better than me standing up here with a long list of Luke's favorite things. These are my favorite things. They need to be your favorite things as well. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're not. So ask God for the grace to give. This is something that doesn't find its way into our prayer life very often. God, will you give me the grace to give? The grace to give. Let's look at verse 16. I've got to move on. But thanks be to God, Paul says, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. And with him... We are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Here's a second guy. Notice his name isn't spelled out for us. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, there's a third guy, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about you to these men. Here's a point I'd like to teach out of this passage so far. Is stewarding God's treasure, it means giving resources to trustworthy people. Okay? Listen, this is probably not something you're really going to hear a lot from a pulpit, and there's not a lot of passages that would carry me there, so I'm going to take advantage of it while I have it. Okay? Notice in this case, Titus was trusted, loved, and vetted. He didn't need a name badge when he walked into the church. People knew who he was. They trusted him. I mean, not because he just knew Paul, but because he was a trustworthy guy. And notice there's two other guys here, too, not even named. But Paul is vouching for him, and they're traveling with Titus. You have a trustworthy pocket of people that are actually collecting a check. That's what's happening. They're collecting a check. Anytime you have three like that, you see an increase of accountability and an increase of weight and a trustworthiness in receiving a gift. And I think there's a principle here that we can apply to today because we need caution in our day. When we are giving our money, our hard-earned money to missionaries, ministries, churches, we cannot afford to be careless and we cannot afford to be naive with who is collecting these gifts. We've got to be careful. 
Now listen, I'm speaking about the entire kingdom right now, not just a church or our church. I'm talking about anything. Because certainly many of you are giving in many different directions. And we're going to talk about that later. And I think that's very good. I think that's very good. But ask yourself some questions as you apply this principle to your life. What's happening to that money? Do they know what they're doing with it? Is there accountability with this money? Do they know how to handle it well? Have they shown themselves to be gospel-centered? Have they shown themselves to be careful in the past? Has fraud ever occurred? Could fraud easily occur? These are good questions for you to ask. Probably the most important one is, what is the money going to? What is the money going to? You see, the, the, where the money goes to speaks of the theology and the culture of whatever that entity is. It does the same for us as individuals, by the way. But you could always, if you want to know where a ministry is headed, a church is headed, a missionary is headed, look at the budget. Just look at the budget. It speaks volumes of where the theology is. It speaks volumes of where the values are. We talked a little bit about this last week, but as I mentioned earlier, after over a decade and a half of being on the support trail, raising financial support. We have a few people in here who have done the same thing. A lot of the people who typically do and aren't here today, but eventually I think we'll probably have a good 15 or so people at Legacy Church that live on a financial support team. That's very high, you know, for a church our size. It's very high. One thing that is common, not rare, but common, is sitting in a living room or an office with somebody that goes to a church that they hate the way their church handles the money, and they're very quick to let you know. And over 15 years, I, I look back and did the math on my records. I've been in over 300 individual unique appointments with, with 300 different people to raise money for either campus ministry or church planting. And not a few times has someone looked across the table or looked across the desk and said, Luke, I tell you what, why don't I just write our whole check to this. This is awesome. What you guys are doing is great. You're actually reaching people. My church, they're like spending $10 million on a new foyer so their weddings could look cooler. Who wants to give to that? That's not going to reach anyone for the Lord. What you're doing is reaching people for the Lord. How about I just write the whole check to this new church plant? Now, half of me says, yes, make the check out to, because that could, 10 million could plant a lot of church. Now, we never got 10 million. I'm just saying. If a church spent 10 million bucks, you could plant a lot of churches with that. But you know what I have to do, and I have done, and I will do, is I try to help them as a pastor speaking to a person say, maybe you ought to find a different church, brother. Maybe you ought to find a different church. If you don't like the values, and you don't like the theology that that budget is spelling out for you, you might be in the wrong church. Don't just be silent and disagree and sit around and then hoard your treasure. Don't do that. That's not an option that the gospel gives us. It's not an option that the Bible gives us at all, right? That's like dating someone with no intention of ever marrying them, just in the off case you might get to make out every once in a while, which is stupid and selfish, but that is what it is. Find a different church. A, maybe your theology and values need to change to match your church because maybe they're not that bad and you're the one messed up. Or maybe, maybe, your church is messed up and you need to find something that is a little bit closer to what you find to be biblical. I think even here, we, we are open and I love it when people ask questions about where the money goes. Feel free to do that, by the way. 
feel free to walk up to me or one of the pastors and ask us where the money goes. And to the best of our ability, we'll, we'll answer you on a broad scale. Now, some of the minutiae we say for our partners and our partner meetings and things like that, but listen, we agree. If you want to know how we are, ask us where our money is going. But not just us, any church you find yourself wanting to partner with, any church you find yourself wanting to join, any ministry that you're looking into, learn where the money is going. I mean, it is upon you to do that. But when everything agrees and you find something that you can trust, be sacrificially generous. Be sacrificially generous. Let's go on. Let's go on to chapter 9, verse 1. Of course, it just continues on. It's the same exact discussion. Paul is not breaking stride as he speaks. He says, now it is superfluous or unnecessary. We don't really use that word today. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred them up the most. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you'd be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be, big word, humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. But I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Here's a teaching point right here. Stewarding God's treasure, it keeps us from shame and humiliation. It keeps us from shame and humiliation. And here I'm going to be careful. But it's been a year. They pledged a year earlier than this letter. A year. A year they've had to collect and send a check. And then they get real weird when it comes time to click on give here. They just aren't doing it. I think there's legitimate shame here. Paul sees nothing wrong with asking people to promise to give money. We see that. He sees nothing wrong with that. Now, he didn't tell them how much they had the promise, but he did expect them to keep their promise. This is all spelled out for us, and it's actually a part of our culture today. We do the same thing today. No one in here that has a cell phone that didn't get it out of a convenience store did not write and sign your name on a contract or a car or a house. I will agree to pay these amounts at these frequencies for this amount of time. And that entity that you signed the contract with, it expects you to fulfill that promise. We do that without blinking an eye today if we get something from it. But when it comes to the church, we get really awed about it. It's strange with this. I think that's interesting. I think a lot of people have problems with this passage that I've learned over time and even some people that I've read because of the use of shame. It looks like, and some of you might have caught this, it looks a little bit too much like Paul is trying to motivate them through guilt instead of the gospel. Does it, didn't it feel like that a little bit when you were reading that? Hey, guys, y'all don't want to look like clowns, do you? I mean, you're about to look like clowns. This is how, if you want to look a little bit better, I mean, just between you and me, you get your crud ready now, right? Because pretty soon you're just going to look stupid. That's what it sounds like. But in fact, it would be to their shame. It would be to their shame. It would be embarrassing if they were not able to get this gift together, just as it would be embarrassing if you had your lights shut off, not because you didn't have the means, but because you didn't steward them correctly. You spent all your money 
gambling online, or you spend all your money watching the Avengers over and over and over and over and over again, and you wake up the next morning, there's no heat. That would be embarrassing. You're not telling all your friends about that. There's some shame attached to that. Or if you're an employer and you couldn't do payroll because you mismanaged your money, that would be shameful. It would be legitimate there. That's what's happening here. Shame is legitimate, and it is teaching them to finish and follow their commitments, meeting their promises. Now, some of us don't want to make promises. I don't want to make promises because of what? Our fear to follow through and finish them out. But it's a part of our normal life, isn't it? It's a part of our normal life. People anticipate us keeping the promises that we make. Just as a quick application, because again, I'm probably never going to get to preach on this again. There's two places I see this the most often in the kingdom of God, right? One is in churches when it comes to like uh, pledge drives or campaigns or something like that, something of that nature. And then the other is with missionaries, whether they're domestic or abroad, right? And that's because both are pledged-based giving models, pledge-based. So in other words, if we are, like today, ironically, you know, we find ourselves in a giving campaign. It's the first one we've ever done. I met a church, a guy that pastors a church our same age. They've done nine. <laughs> They've done a lot of campaigns. I don't even know how to do my first one. We're like figuring this out on the first one, right? And one thing I'm learning that conventional wisdom is, is that whatever comes in, you take 40% off of it, and that's realistically what is supposed to come in. 40%. So if, if we receive pledges from legacy for maybe up to like 100,000, just an even number, then what conventional wisdom and what a room full of pastors would tell me is, Luke, that's not really 100,000 that you're going to get. Don't forecast on that. Just 60,000. If I were to take that pledge into a bank and secure financing from a bank or get a loan from a bank or something like that, even the bank would say, yeah, probably closer to 50,000 is what that's worth. Listen, friends, that's to the church's shame. It's to the church's shame that we can't pledge 100 and count on 100 or pledge 50 and count on 50. We have to take money off because we have so much of the Corinthian blood in us and we pause and we hesitate for the most awkward reasons when it comes to just fulfilling a promise, right? And the second place I see this is with missionaries. The problem with missionaries is they don't have the opportunity to go out and overdevelop their partnership teams to be out on the mission field. They can't raise 50% more than their goal. They'll be out there forever raising support. They'll never even get to their missionary assignment. Most will quit before they even get there. And the number that they would have to raise would be so inordinately high that people would struggle with their limit, right? So they don't. And they just hope that people are honorable to their commitment. It is common, not rare. It is common, speaking from someone who's done this for well over 15 years, to be in a meeting, everyone's excited, you're high-fiving each other, they can't wait to send the first check. That first check never comes. Not in month one, not in month two, not in month three. Of course, they already start to feel the shame of not giving the gift. So guess who's not going to call you back or text you back? That person, right? It happens. What I'm trying to tell you now is if you ever pledge with a church, if you ever pledge with a missionary or a ministry to any degree, avoid the shame and embarrassment that Paul is talking about right here because it's legitimate. Don't let it be your motive for giving but understand that it's a legitimate shame that follows us. It'd be the same shame as if we didn't meet a bill or we didn't meet our payroll, right? Let's look at verse six. I gotta move on. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is a pivotal passage right here. The teaching point I'd like to pull out of it is that stewarding the treasure God owns, it feeds us to feed others. It's feeding us but it's feeding us to feed others. You see, I have to be very, very, very careful here, especially with what I'm about to say, but verses 6 through 11 has been used, abused, to bring about some real crappy teaching that I'm sure you've heard. And that crappy teaching sounds like if you give more than what you can afford, more than what you even feel comfortable with, into this ministry, then God will make you prosperous. He will make you wealthy. He will make you comfortable. You'll get rid of that sickness. You'll have friends out of nowhere. You'll get an increase at your job. It will happen for you if you dig deep, and I mean extra deep, right now. You will see them go back to this passage. There's many names for it. Seed giving, prosperity theology, prosperity gospel, prosperity message. It's all the same. Here's where it's tricky. Don't mishear me. The Bible does, in fact, urge us to lay up treasure in heaven and invest, understanding that there will be eternal rewards. This is true. This is, we just read it. We just read it. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. We also see Jesus in Matthew 10 saying, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Investment reward, investment reward. We see the same thing again in Proverbs. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Investment reward. It's legitimate to remind people of the consequences of their giving, which is all Paul is doing. Paul, Jesus, also, is not appealing for them to give for the motive of getting rich, but from the motive of knowing that their gift is going to have great effect and that a good owner resupplies a good manager. A good owner will resupply a good manager. Notice the examples that they use in this passage are agrarian. They're farming, seed, sowing, farm. I know nothing about any of that, right? But I understand the concept, and so do you. If you sow a little bit, you'll get a little bit. And if you sow a bunch, you'll get a bunch. Duh, right? So, I mean, if this room were a field and we were just to kind of haphazardly throw some bacon seeds over here to grow a little crop of bacon, you'll get some bacon, right? And some of it won't look good. Sad, nothing worse than sad bacon either, right? Now, some of it will look good. It'll be crispy and black on the edges, have a little bit of a crunch to it. This wood flavor to it, just perfect bacon. But some of it will look like not ripe yet. Some will be overcooked. Some will be undercooked. That's how crops are. But if I do this whole room, we're going to have a lot of great bacon, aren't we? It's a great day. Everyone comes back next week. <laughs> the church that has bacon, right? It's the same thing financially. If I, if I were to spend 2% of my annual income, it will have an effect. It will. It'll have an effect. If I were to spend 38% of my annual income, math will tell you it will have a great effect. 
That's all that he is saying right here. Now, where it gets different for us and maybe another camp that is more prosperity in its leanings theologically, where it says reaping and sowing, where you reap what you sow, the reaping and the sowing is not really focused on the increase of the farmer, but the increase of the field. The field is what's feeling the increase. It is the field that is feeling just the, the huge abundance and the bounty, not the farmer. It's not talking about the farmer. I think this is where the prosperity camp misses it. I think this is where they take a hard right when we take a hard left. They say, oh, no, 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 no. It's for the sower. And we would say, no, 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 no. It's for the field. It's for the field. Yes, God will give us more seed. It is to plant more, not to sit there and eat a bowl of seed. You have to be careful here. Verses 8 through 11, Paul says basically in Paul terms, when you give like this, don't be nervous. When you give deeply, if God has given you a burden for something and he's put on your heart to give hardcore giving, radical giving to something, don't be nervous. Don't be anxious. If he's given you a desire for it and a joy for it and he's kind of checked that box in your heart, give it. You'll be okay. Be at peace and content because God demonstrates his love for cheerful givers by giving them more grace and opportunity. He resupplies good managers. Remember, it's from God that everything comes. You have to remember that. It's from him and through him and to him are all things. It is from him that all things come. The righteous person who desires to give to the drastic and critical needs around them the one who desires, has a heavy desire to do that and does that, God will resupply that person to do what? To sow more. Give them more grace. Give them more ability. Give them more opportunity. Give them more something. Because isn't that what we do with good managers today? You're owning a company and you notice a manager is just crushing it and everything this guy touches, he is a good steward. What do you do? You don't, you don't shrink his ability. You give him more. You give her a bigger office. You give them a, a, a more of a, a reach. Let them get their fingerprints on more. Why? Because they're good. They've shown themselves to be good stewards. This is to the joy of a good owner. That is where this passage is going. God's promise is to give seed for the sowing, not for, part, not for comfort, not for personal joy, not for you, just to enjoy and sit on a case to sow. You know, I want to be careful here because the passage is very clear for us, but there is a lot of damage in the church today. And, and can, if I could just say this one thing, everyone who teaches a prosperity theology is not wicked and trying to steal. I was there just maybe 10 years ago. This was me. I would have easily just stood up on a stage and said, hey, listen, some of you are sick right now because you've not been faithful in your giving. I would have easily just come right out of my mouth. I wasn't trying to steal from them, and I really wanted them to be better. I just had really bad theology. They're not all crooks. They're not all, no, some of them are, straight up. They are not all crooks, but they are all bad exegetes. They're not exegeting and drawing out the truth of the Bible very clearly. They're not doing a good job of that. That I'll say, okay? Let me explain. Back in the day when we were a young, young, young couple and we had one car, you know, um, well, we had two cars, but it's more like one and a half car. Y'all ever been in that situation? 
You have one that you could count on, but one, eh, just kind of depended on the day. We had this car. It was a Ford Escort. I had it since high school. It's just a sexy car, you know? And I felt the Lord tell me, and my wife felt the Lord tell her that we needed to give it away. And I thought, you don't give anything. A car? People give cars away? Like, I could still get like 80 bucks for that. You know what I'm saying? I'm not going to give that car away. But, you know, my wife is so much better about giving things away and, and writing big checks. It's much more, she, she initiates that conversation. I'll put it that way. It doesn't usually come from my my end, because I struggle with that. I struggle with things like that, sowing big seed. But we did. We gave it away. And then God immediately turned around and gave us another car, right? It was another Ford Escort. It was not red. It was silver this time, right? A little bit nicer. We drove it for a while, and then we realized God is asking us to give this car away. So I'm struggling with it, not as much. But I'm struggling. This is where my struggle was. I, I knew by then we could probably pick up another car. My struggle was is I want to give this, but God, I want you to give me a better car if I do it this time. I want you to give me a better car for me. And this piece of junk, I have to roll the windows up and down like this. I want a button, Jesus. You know, I want you to help me out. So in my mind, my prosperity thinking, I'm thinking certainly I'm a good manager. Certainly you'll give me a, put the Nissan Z back up there. This is what I want, Lord. So if I give this Ford Escort away, it's coming, isn't it? The car is not this slow. The screen sometimes is this slow. The car is fast. That's what I wanted. That's what I had in my mind when I'm giving away these cars. This is what God's going to give me. Go ahead and show him what, what I got, Christian, instead of this car. Can you do that? Give it a second. This was my third car. Y'all notice? That? <laughs> That's another Ford Escort. Did you notice that? That's three in a row. God gave us another Ford Escort. I've owned three. No one in this room even knows anyone who's owned three Ford Escorts, right? <laughs> and we gave that one away too. We gave all three away, and then God gave us another car. You see how that works? God was resupplying us because we were sowing it. That's how it works. Now, my, my heart struggled with that the whole time. I didn't feel comfortable doing that. Who feels comfortable giving stuff like that away or over-sowing? God gave us a grace to give within our means, and in some cases like that, he gave us a grace to give beyond our means. And then he gave us more seed. Not, one, not seed that I could just roll around and enjoy, seed that I could give away again and again and again. That's how the principle looks. He does not promise wealth for our consumption. The multiplied seed is a consequence of big giving, not an incentive for big giving. Paul does finish with something I'm very appreciative of. He says, we'll never give generously. He's basically saying, you're never going to give generously, sacrificially and generously without discovering God's ability to resupply you that you may give generously again and then give generously again. In other words, you're never going to know the freedom to give except as a theory until you join the company of big givers. Never going to know the freedom. Never going to know the joy. Generous giving brings its own rewards that the stingy will never know. Never know. Only generous people know because they are on the receiving end. God feeds us so that we can feed others. So when you give, and he goes on, and we don't have enough time to teach this, so I'm going to have to shut it down, but 
when we give, we make up our own mind to give. We don't allow guilt to fuel us. We looked at this last week. Guilt telling us that we need to give or God will blast us. Or greed. We're going to give so that God will give me something bigger, something better. But we allow the gospel to lead us in this. And we set a goal. Set it ahead of time. Be resolute in it. Be joyful. Sometimes this is a process. This is what I love about the giving process. When I watch it in other believers, as I watch them grapple and kind of wrestle with giving for the first time and then giving consistently and then increasing their giving, I don't enjoy the wrestling match because it makes the church more money. That's goofy. What I enjoy is watching them grow in the whole thing. That's a process, isn't it? God is touching something that's so special to us and so important to us. The whole process of setting a goal will grow you. The whole process of being consistent will grow you. The whole process of sowing seed and then seeing seed come back in that you can send back out, that grows you. I love it. Because what this does over time is it leads to a cheerful giver. That word cheerful in the Greek means hilarion or hilarious, a hilarious giver, a joyful giver, not a giver that just writes a check and instantly regrets and wishes they had not written that check. I've done that. Given, given a gift and thought, oh, immediately spending it in my mind what I could have gotten with that check and not rejoicing and celebrating but really feeling kind of a buyer's remorse. It leads to a cheerful giver over time as we see the gospel. Go ahead and stand up. This is going to be my question for you. I told you this was an odd passage. When you think of giving, does it bring you shame, regret, hesitation. When you think of giving, do you think of joy? Does it make you joyful? Think about it. Do you feel regret and shame? Or do you feel joyful? It's the first thing that comes to your mind. The answer determines whether you see Jesus as giving to you. It shows you whether your heart says joy or your heart goes to shame, it shows you your theology of how Jesus was as a giver. He's a good giver. We become a hilarious giver whenever we understand that God gave of his depth, impoverishing himself to bring wealth to our account. Then wealth and poverty are redefined, and we actually enjoy giving. Because what's the worst that could happen? You sacrifice something, you'll grow for it. You'll give a little bit, there will be effect around you. The field will produce a harvest. What's the worst that could happen? You might run out. I think he says that he resupplies good managers. That's how I read that. Not for your benefit, but for the field around you. I love how he just gives that assurance. It brings me joy. It settles me down. I don't have to freak out when it comes to giving. Or do you instantly go to shame? Think about it. Why are you ashamed? Are you ashamed because you've been a Corinthian? Are you ashamed because you've tried to give to get or give in order to avoid a punishment from God in some way? We have an opportunity as we worship God, and we're about to pray and go straight into a musical worship. And all the musical worship is is for you to join with as we praise God, but also for you to consider what you've heard and consider what the Bible is teaching you on your motives for giving or your motives for not giving. And let your heart wrestle with the gospel. Let it wrestle with that core part of you. Let Jesus' truth wrestle with that core part of you that just wants to not give for whatever reason. And I just want to, want to remind you as we go in, God is a good giver and we give like our God. God is a good giver. He's a good owner. 
and we give like our God. Amen? Father, we thank you for being so good to us that you are a good giver. You emptied your account. You did not tithe. You did not give 1%. And you didn't give 99%. You gave 100%. You stooped. You condescended. You lowered yourself. You humiliated yourself. You put shame on increasingly more and more and more, even to a shameful death. And you did that so that we would have the glimmer of our, in our eye of a, of a, of a wealthy family in a beautiful place, and a great king. So Lord, help us see that you are first and foremost a good giver. Let your giving establish our giving. Father, you are such a good giver to us. Lord, we just need, we just need help in seeing our hearts become more and more cheerful. I know there are cheerful givers in here, and then there are those in here that struggle with that. Lord, for years I struggled with this. But I only struggled because I didn't see your gospel more clearly. Lord, you gave all of yourself. Help us. Help us in our giving. And Father, I know that there are those in here who have never responded to your wealth-giving, lowering. What you did on the cross as you broke your body and as you spilled out your blood, you did so to atone us before God himself. You did that to make us right, to give us righteousness. You did that to trade a, a very perfect life with a very imperfect life and one that is full of worship for one that was full of scandal. And Lord, as we lay down our lives today as a church, I pray that there would be some in here that would lay down their lives and become a part of the church. God, that you would rescue hearts today, that you would show your wealth today, that you would change hearts today, Lord, even today. Lord, that repentance would be here. Repentance for mishandling and stealing treasure, but also a repentance from being a sinner and living our own lives. You're so good to us, and we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.